And as you know, we've been in this worship series on being immersed into the biblical story all year long. We're looking at one book of the Bible every week. And today we're looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, a very substantial and important text. And although we, you know, I would love to spend weeks with you on Romans, but what we have is 15 to 20 minutes today. So we're going to dive right into the heart of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 26. So grab a Bible and follow along with me, or you can follow along on the screens in front of you. Listen to the word of God. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by his deeds prescribed by the law for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the gift of God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the book of Romans in this letter written to the church in Rome presents the very mature theological perspectives of the Apostle Paul. What I mean by that is that scholars think it was written near the end of Paul's ministry, at the end of his second missionary journey, So he traveled all across the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean, visiting churches filled with people who were faithfully following Jesus. And as he went about that ministry, he just developed a very firm foundation for what it looked like to follow Jesus. And so he writes this letter to Rome, encouraging them, trying to share wisdom with them because he hopes to visit them soon as he goes on his way to Spain. But as we know, The reason why he ends up in Rome once he gets back to Jerusalem is not for that reason, but for another reason, where he is in prison later on in Rome. 
this text is mature because he's trying to address a problem that he's faced in each of these churches as he's traveled through the ancient Near East. And the problem is this. How can Jews and Greeks or Gentiles who faithfully follow Jesus be together? How can they be hospitable to one another? Because the law says that Jewish persons are supposed to be distinct. They are supposed to be holy like God is holy distinct and separate from the world. And by being distinct and separate from the world, they'll be a blessing to the world. And so they were not supposed to intermingle with Gentiles, but supposed to be separate and distinct. Jesus himself is Jewish and comes from this perspective, this milieu and this world. And yet Paul is traveling all around the Mediterranean and he's meeting people and seeing people who are wrestling with this. Jesus is being faithfully followed by Gentiles. But Jesus is also being faithfully followed by those who were Jewish. And so how can they make hospitable, uh, a hospitable way for both of them together to faithfully follow Jesus and worship together? This is the problem that the Apostle Paul sees as he's writing this letter to Rome and as he sees all around all the churches that he visits. And as you heard in the very first part of what I read to you today, uh, what he sees is not a good thing. <laughs> what the Apostle Paul sees when he looks at humanity is the power of sin at work in humanity. And what he means by that is he says, no one is righteous. No one even seeks God. Everyone has turned and gone astray. There is no one who has done what is just in the eyes of the Lord. Everyone, Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. No one is righteous. Now, the word righteous, I just want to stop here for just a second and look at this as we look at the biblical text here. The word righteous is a relationship word in the New Testament. In the Greek, the word is dikaiosune, and dikaiosune is a relationship word, and it can be translated into English as either righteous or justice. It's a relationship word because if we have some legal scholars here, which I know there are some in our church community, we know that sometimes when a relationship doesn't go well between one party and a second party, there's a breaking in that relationship. You need a third party to come over and bring healing and restoration to that relationship, to bring justice, to make right that relationship between party one and party two. And so the Apostle Paul says that this relationship between these two people, between Jews and Greeks, there's not righteousness there, but there certainly is not righteousness between God and between humans. This past week, I had the privilege and honor of being able to participate in this online webinar from one of my dear friends from undergrad who is a marriage and family therapist, and she is venturing out a little side gig during the pandemic to do some educational experiences for persons who are married. And so my wife and I got to participate in this little webinar. And her little side job that she's building is to help married families learn more about intimacy and four core pieces of what intimacy looks like, what, what a good relationship would look like between married persons. And one of those pieces is about being emotionally intimate with each other. And she said this thing that I want to share now. She said that in married relationships, this happens all the time. One partner in a relationship will make a bid for the other person's attention. You know, maybe they're walking into a room and they say, hey, I read this thing on the news today, or hey, I saw this thing on TV, or hey, I was a part of this email and it talked about this, 
Or, hey, I just won my fifth fantasy football week in a row. I'm so proud of myself. And we make these bids for attention all the time in relationships. And she said that if these bids for attention, sometimes they can be accepted and heard and they can be responded to, but sometimes they can end up being dismissed. And she said healthy relationships, when you're feeling good between one another emotionally, that they should be responded to at least 80% of the time. 80% of the time. And we do bids for attention all the time during the day, uh, just hundreds of times. And she said, you know, bids for attention are tough because there's this thing you're talking about, like the news, these things that seem relatively unimportant. But deep down underneath these bids for attention is the real thing that people are reaching out for, that people are reaching out to say, I want to be known by you, and I want to know you. I want to feel connected to you, and I want you to feel connected to me. And so sometimes we might talk about these things that are seemingly meaningless, but underneath that, there is this longing to be connected to one another, to be emotionally intimate with one another. And I think that, to me, is sort of a reference point for this break in relationship between God and everyone. The power of sin at work in the world is a relational power to pull people apart, to pull people away from God, to be separated and to separated from God. This is what the power of sin is about. This is why Paul talks about it so much in The Power of Sin is because we feel this all the time in our lives, this break in connection, this break in intimacy from God and break in intimacy with one another. But now, but now, could you hear there's this massive turning point in Romans chapter 3 where Paul presents the problem. He says the problem that everyone is under the power of sin. Jews and Greeks, there's broken relationship between God and humans and humans and humans. But then he says, but now, but now Jesus Christ, like Jesus is a part of this equation and he presents perhaps some of the most beautiful verses in all of the scriptures, right? When he says, all are justified, all are justified, all have fallen short of the glory of God, but all are justified through the faith of Jesus for all who believe. These are some of the most beautiful verses in all of the New Testament and it hinges on this change, this complete change of perspective wherein Paul says, but now, but now Jesus and when we have Jesus as a part of what this story looks like between God and humans and Jews and Greeks, there's a possibility for right relationship between God and humans and humans and humans and Jews and Greeks to be able to be hospitable to one another. This contains the very good news in the heart of the scripture. But now, Jesus Christ. I mean, we could stay here forever. It's such a beautiful part of the scripture. And not just that, but the Apostle Paul says that this is grace. It's held out as a gift to you and I. For those of you who were here earlier and heard Pastor Mary's wonderful children's message, just the, the joy of what it feels like to have someone who loves you, who knows you, who feels connected to you, to hear you and to know your longings and to hold out a gift for you. This is what God is doing. God is holding out this gift God wants to be known by you, wants to know you, wants to be connected to you, and holds out this gift to you as grace. And it's Jesus Christ wants to hold out this gift to you. And it's the most beautiful thing in all of the New Testament. All has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yes. However, all are justified by faith in Jesus 
for all who believe. Now, I want to pause at this verse for just a second. And before you put the scripture up on the screen, Drew, I want to look at verse 26. But before you do, I want to do a little uh, seventh grade English lesson with you all. Maybe I've done this before. I don't know. I've been here for a while, so I don't know if I've done this with you already or not. But there's this thing that I remember in seventh grade English where when you're trying to discover what is a prepositional word in English, do you, do you remember this? Maybe you did this when you were in seventh grade English, but my teacher said, Prepositional words in English are words that describe the relationship between one noun and another noun. And so they're the words that we use to describe the relationship between the cat and a box. A cat can be on a box, it can be beside a box, it can be under the box, it can be in the box, it could be around the box, or it could even be of the box. These prepositional words in English are so important because it radically changes the meaning of a sentence, right? If a cat is on the box, it's on the box. If the cat's inside of the box, it's in the box. Those are two very different realities that we use English words to describe a thing that's important and significant. Now, here's where I'm getting at with my seventh grade English lesson, okay? In Romans chapter 3, and in a lot of the Apostle Paul's writings, in Greek, there are very few, if not any, prepositional words in Greek. Instead, in Greek, you have two nouns that are related to one another, and they show that they're related to another by having the same ending of the word. So the endings of nouns change in Greek, and it shows the reader, oh, these two things are in a relationship with one another. But to determine how they're in relationship with another is based on a lot of context. So let's look at verse 26 really quick, Drew, if you don't mind putting that up on the screen. And if you had a Bible in front of you, you'll see this. It says, it was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Now those last three words in English, faith in Jesus, are really the words faith Jesus. And it's really hard to translate it. You'll see a little asterisk to a footnote that says, or it could be translated faith of Jesus, faith of Jesus. Now, we could have classes about this, okay? I took a bunch of classes in seminary on Romans, and we spent weeks upon weeks about faith in Jesus or faith of Jesus. Scholars have been arguing about this for hundreds of years. So I'll just get to what I think it is. I think it's the faith of Jesus. I think the NRSV has it wrong. And here's why. If all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but now God justifies all through this gift of grace given to you, I think it's done not because we have faith in Jesus, but because of the faith of Jesus. Fundamentally, it's about something that Jesus has done and not something that we have done to repair this broken relationship between God and humanity and humans and humans. It is something that Jesus has done. And in fact, it's not just a thing that Jesus has done, but it's exemplified by who Jesus is as we learn through all of the scriptures that Jesus primarily puts his trust and his faithfulness in God over and over and over and over again. Jesus takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to 5,000 people hoping that somehow that will feed all of them, and it does. Jesus tells these disciples of his to drop their nets to follow me. I'm gonna make you fishers of people. Jesus does all of these incredible acts of faithfulness to God, trusting in God. He takes these leaps of faith, little ones, 
medium-sized ones, and then even significant ones, like when he's standing in front of Pilate, and Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, says you, so you say so. You know, and he says, essentially, yes, yes. Even knowing that it might mean him going to the cross, and that being atonement. Jesus has all of these small little leaps of faith. Jesus is the one who brings reconciliation, brings redemption, and brings a just relationship between God and humanity through what Jesus has done. The faith of Jesus. All this year, we have been trying to talk about, you know, developing a literacy of the Bible. A literacy of the Bible, right? That's why we're doing this worship series. Now, you can be well-versed in the whole of the biblical story, okay? You can know it all. You can know all the words. You can know the history. You could read a bunch of commentaries. You could know a lot about the Bible. You could be very literate in the Bible. But at the end of the day, you just might miss the true subject matter of the text. Like, what is this really about? What is the whole of the Scripture pointing to from the very beginning to the very end? What is it all pointing to? What is it all about? Now, I could tell another long story, and I'm sorry I won't, but I'll try to keep it brief. But a hundred years ago, this Protestant theologian wrote a commentary on the book of Romans, and it disrupted the academic world because for about 150 years up to then, um, the academic world knew a lot about Romans, but it knew very little about Jesus who proceeded forth from it, the true subject matter of the text. And so I think Romans is so significant because Paul knows Jesus And Paul is pointing radically to who Jesus is and the justifying works of God through Jesus Christ and the faith of Jesus. So I'm going to read this quote to you now from um, Karl Barth's commentary on Romans chapter 3. I think it's beautiful and a good closing word for us this day on Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read it slowly, and I'll post it on Facebook later so you can read it slowly along with me, okay? But I think he knows the subject matter, and so does Romans chapter 3. And at the beginning of this quote, he's talking about the but now that I mentioned, the but now, the the shift towards pointing to Jesus. And it says this, but this one point, the but now, is not a point among other points. And this one presupposition is not one among many presuppositions. Our origin evokes in us a memory of our habitation with the Lord of heaven and earth. And at this reminiscence, the heavens are rent asunder. The graves are opened. The sun stands still upon Gibeon, and the moon stays in the valley of Ihalon. But now directs our attention to time which is beyond time, to space which has no locality, to impossible possibility, to the gospel of transformation, to the imminent coming of the kingdom of God, to affirmation and negation, to salvation in the world, to acquittal and condemnation, to eternity in time, to life in death. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth are passed away. This is the word of God. I love this quote, my friends, because when it comes to what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to do, like essentially what I think is happening in Romans chapter three is that God is bidding for our attention by holding out this gift of grace in Jesus Christ and saying, hey, I want to know you. 
I want you to know me. I want us to have a just and right relationship, and I want the world to be just and to have right relationship with each other. And I'm holding out this gift for you. And if you believe in it and you have faith and you take a leap of faith, Jews and Gentiles can worship together and you can worship with me and we can be in harmony with one another. When you have these leaps of faith, you'll see life and death. You'll see eternity and time. God will show up. Just have trust, have faithfulness. So my friends, I guess I would ask you, like Jesus, he displayed this faithfulness. What's the small little leap of faith you need to take today? to trust, to lean into who God is. It could be small, it could be immediate. Maybe God's putting something big on your heart and you know it could be hard, but you also know deep down inside that there is eternity in time. There is life in death and you can take a step forward. You can take a step forward in putting your faithfulness on God because it is God who justifies all, all through the faith of Jesus. You can trust in God. You can trust in God. You can take that bid for attention and join in that kind of deep and profound relationship with who God is as a result of Jesus Christ. But now, but now, God justifies all who have faith of Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thanks for this day. Thank you for the gift of the Apostle Paul's words. But we also thank you for the word behind the word, God who is Jesus Christ, who is constantly drawing our attention to you, to trust you, and not just to trust you, but to develop and to build an awareness ourselves of what it looks like to be, to be righteous, to have just relationship with God and just relationship with each other and to see justice in the world. Lord, we love you and we lift up our hearts to you and we lift up this text to you and we ask that we ourselves could find inspiration from the faithfulness of Jesus in our life that we could feel that trust and we could experience that in our own lives and take leaps of faith ourselves as we feel like doors are being opened to us to do just that. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.